Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey everyone, we're back with episode four of Plus Plus Podcast. I'm Ankita Rao. And I'm Jason Kebler. This week, we have a story from our features editor, Brian Anderson. Brian, you've been working on this story for two years now, right? A little over two years. Yes. Which is a long time. Your baby. It is my baby, and now it's out in the world. How does it feel? Uh, Cathartic. And I shouldn't say my baby, because a lot of people worked on it. The story is the search for a smart gun, and it tells the story of who killed the smart gun. Smart guns are user-authenticated firearms. So the idea is that the gun would only fire in the hands of an approved user. This is a really special episode because it's not just a podcast. This is also a documentary that just was screened yeah, or open the to the public. the premiere was last yes. night. Yep, after you listen, you should go ahead and watch it too. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about how you reported it because you went to West Virginia, you went to New York, upstate, You went to Washington State, you went to D.C. and Virginia. You went all over the place to report this story. So how did you go about like putting this together and finding the places where you decided to film? Well, we knew we wanted to talk to the government. So the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms seemed like the logical choice. Their headquarters is in West Virginia. So that was a starting point. But backing up, that actually wasn't even the first shoot. So... A year before that, even, uh, we went to a gun shop in Mount Vernon, New York, which is like an hour, hour and a half outside of New York City. And we just wanted to talk to a normal gun shop owner to get like the ground level view. And it sort of branched out from there. And just by coincidence, as you'll see, there were two smart gun developers in Mount Vernon that day having some sort of closed-door symposium with some local officials. So we brought them both to the gun store, and we could see the friction immediately from the gun store owner, who's very concerned about high-tech encroaching, and these two smart gun developers. So there seemed to be an interesting space to explore between the two camps, so we just went from there. And So the government was the next stop, and... From there, we went to Washington to meet a smart gun developer out there. Eric Franco, another motherboarder, had met a couple months prior. So things just sort of came together as an assemblage, if you will, of shoots that we already had in the can and also shoots that opened up through people in the 
motherboard family and extended motherboard family. I also remember on election day that you were down in West Virginia shooting this, and I thought that was fascinating because you were probably in one of the most interesting places you could possibly be to find out that Donald Trump would be our new president. Yeah, and I think just to piggyback there, we were here in Brooklyn and Brooklyn went heavily for Hillary Clinton and it was a very mournful day here. Like it was very eerie being out on the streets and I'm just curious, West Virginia went heavily for Trump. So I'm yeah. like, what was it like? It was upbeat. Like the morning we woke up, people seemed stoked. And uh, a lot of people we spoke to were like, Whew, yeah, like, uh, I'm, gl- I'm glad it didn't go the other way. I'm glad Hillary didn't win. But actually, so the day before that, on election day, that's when we were actually at the ATF in a vault full of 19,000 guns, which is a very interesting place to be on election day. And yeah, waking up the next morning, like personally being sort of shocked and thinking about like, what's the office like back in Brooklyn? But here we are in rural West Virginia. And We had something planned that morning. I can't remember what, but it fell through. So we figured let's just go to a pawn shop. And we found Frazier's Pawn Shop. And they had a Trump, Pence, Make America Great Again sign in the window. So that sort of told us what we needed to know. And down there, it's like you see those signs in storefronts and homes kind of everywhere. Also Confederate flags. And... So we went in this gun shop, you know, they had Fox News queued up on their computers and they seemed relieved. But at the same time, there weren't a lot of people in there. And when we got to talking with the guy who runs the gun counter at this pawn shop, he was like, oh, yeah, if Hillary won, this place would have been mobbed. And he sees the same thing after any mass shooting when a lot of the gun owning public worries about a liberal president or liberal policymakers exploiting a tragedy to enact really harsh gun bans. So he was expecting, had Hillary won, to see a rush on the gun store in the same way he would after a Sandy Hook or an Atlanta shooting. So it was weird seeing these people who were both like really relieved that Trump won, but also not getting as much business as they could have been getting that day. This story is great. Brian worked really hard on it, as did several other people at Motherboard. Let's go on the road with you as you search for the smart gun. Here in the United States, around 33,000 people are fatally shot every year, many of them by sheer accident. The number is staggering. It's the highest death rate of any developing country. And we're pretty far from a solution. We look to politics, and there's a stalemate. We look to education, but it's not enough. As we collectively point fingers at the people we think are responsible for gun deaths, we forget there might be another way to approach America's gun problem, technology. If we can set it up so you can't unlock your phone unless you got the right fingerprint, why can't we do the same thing for our guns? Smart guns. Guns that only fire in the hands of approved users. But where are these smarter guns? And can they actually save lives? I went across the country to find out. I met Kai Klepfer at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology in Boston. Kai is a 19-year-old engineer trying to make a gun that unlocks with a matching fingerprint, kind of like your iPhone. I got started with smart guns during my sophomore year of high school, um, when I was 15. I was looking for an engineering science fair project that maybe had a little bit more 
like societal impact. And so this was also about two months after the Aurora theater shooting. And I'm from Boulder, Colorado, which is about a half an hour away from Aurora. And so I actually started out not with how do I build a smart gun, but how can I address this problem of mass shootings? And as I started to do research around mass shootings, I realized that we have a mass shooting every single day in the United States. It just doesn't all happen in one place. And so we don't really hear about these single gun accidents and gun deaths, but they cause just as much damage as any mass shooting would. After I started doing some of that research, I switched from working on mass shootings to working on accidental gun deaths and suicides. Not only do I think they're a bigger problem, but they're one that lends itself much more readily to sort of a, an engineering solution. Kai told me that the Armatix IP-1, the first and only smart gun that's come to market, was basically a failure. It only shot a 22 caliber bullet, which Kai calls a Boy Scout round, and it required the owner to wear a weird clunky watch in order to get it to fire. Kai thought he could do better, so we went into his workshop, which is actually just his dorm room. It's about what you'd expect a dorm room to look like, and he can't actually have the gun with him because of state law, but he does have some parts that compose the inner working of the gun. So he showed those to us. This is basically one of our, our current circuit boards, the brains of the operation in a lot of ways. These are a few of our fingerprint sensors. And when the user picks the handgun up, the finger naturally lands on the sensor. And that's how we start off the process of, of recognizing the user's fingerprint, basically. And, um, and these are a few of the batteries that we're using. You know, they're, they're pretty small and thin. Overall, it's, it's actually, it's not anywhere near as complicated as it looks. So we've got, you know, we've got the fingerprint sensor and circuit board and everything on this side. You know, the, the battery is, is along the other side. A traditional firearm of this style has what's known as a double stack magazine. We sort of switched that to a single stack magazine. So that reduces the number of rounds, but allows us to fit sort of all of the, you know, electronics and everything. Um, when you sort of naturally grip the, the handgun, your middle finger is going to land right on that sensor. There's no like swiping or you know, pushing buttons or any additional movement that's required on the part of the user. They just pick it up and it works. I honestly expect, whether it's us or somebody else, to see smart guns pretty prevalent in the next five or ten years. And honestly, further out from that 10, 20 years, if we still have guns, which hopefully we do, I think they're all going to be smart guns. About 3,000 miles away from Kai's dorm room, I met Emil Grofstra. He's a renowned biohacker in Seattle. He had an idea. Could he make a smart gun that seamlessly functioned with his body? He decided to use an implant, injected under the skin between his thumb and his pointer finger. The implant would be synced up to a specific gun. I wouldn't say I'm a gun person, but there was a gun that I wanted to get, and uh, I actually learned about it through video games. Uh, I thought, you know, if I'm going to get one, I want it to be something that one of my kids can't just pick up and, and shoot. You know, there's other smart guns that are being developed that are kind of based on, like, fingerprint or other things, and I just thought that, you know, those technologies are typically a little clunky or require, like, a wristband or some kind of wearable. I already had implants, so it just made sense to use a gun that worked with implants. So I'm like, I, I can make one. So this is a, a version of the tag that's basically like glued to a stick. So that's what's inside the hand right there, little cylinder. And um, you can see I can kind of pop it up there. You mm -hmm. can see it's the edge of it is trying to poke out there. Can't do it. Yeah. yeah. You can poke it and move it around a bit. When did you put this in? So this one went in in uh, March 2005, so over 11 years ago. It's uh, MRI compliant as well. I can get an MRI or any medical procedure, it's fine. Go through security at the airport, just fine. 
can the implants that you use with your smart gun be used to track the owner? No, not at all. Um, they're passive devices, which means there's no battery. They only operate when they're within the magnetic field of a reader, uh, which means you know maybe an inch at most. That's the beauty of these devices. They're simple, no battery, no charging, no management. They just work. They're going to work and do their jobs beautifully every time, all the time. An implant uh, system is just ideal because it's always there. You never forget it. You kind of forget about it, actually. It's, uh, it's, it's really something that doesn't really interfere with your life until you need to use it. And uh, in a scenario where you want to ensure that you're the only one operating the weapon, or you and your spouse, or you and other authorized users, it's kind of hard to beat a weapon that fundamentally, internally, won't function until you present an authorized ID. Could you walk me through what goes into this gun and how it works? There is a small area here where there's electronics, and then this uh, grip area has an antenna coil around it, uh, and then inside the trigger mechanism here, there's a little peg that will lock, and that blocks the trigger from being pulled. So in order to remove that additional lock, I have to present the implant to this reader uh, in the grip area here. So when I do that, I can just do this. You hear a beep, you hear the little uh, servo mechanism, and now I can operate the trigger. Have you received any criticism or threats as a result of your work? Oh yeah, of course. When I first got the implant in uh, 2005, there was a lot of hubbub, and I received some death threats and, and things at that time. Uh, but then again, with the smart gun project, the death threats kind of resurfaced and people saying that I was trying to, you know, work with the government or something to take away their American rights and all this stuff. And so this is the kind of thing that really got me thinking, like, a person that is actively advocating violence against another person for something they're doing in their garage who has not, doesn't really affect them and, and actually could help a lot of people is wanting to go murder me with their weapon, right? Like, this is the exact person that shouldn't have guns. And this is the, the heart of the argument uh, about regulating. All I want to do is make a smart gun so my kid couldn't shoot themselves or me. Emil and Kai are both building smart guns, but they're different guns and they're used for different reasons. Emil just wanted to make one that worked and Kai wants to scale his gun so it can be widely available on the market. But either way, some experts argue that these high-tech guns could do more for public safety than trying to change human behavior. David Hemingway is the director of the Harvard Injury Control Research Center and the author of Private Guns, Public Health. If we had smart guns, that would reduce gun theft, it would reduce gun accidents, it would reduce gun suicides, so certainly among teenagers. If you could sit down with a staunch gun enthusiast that doesn't want anything to do with chips and a grip, what would you say to that person as a public health specialist? Yeah. There's always people sort of fighting against improvements. So it took over 20 years uh, fighting against the automobile industry to get uh, airbags into cars, which have saved innumerable lives. Is it as much about changing technology as it is about changing human behavior? Typically, it's much more cost-effective to change the product than to try to educate every person and people make mistakes all the time and behave often behave badly uh, in virtually all the successes in public health it's really been changing the product and the environment which has been shown to be uh, the most effective it looks just like the ones on tv and in my video stop don't touch run away telegram but smart guns face the same political resistance that gun control advocates face 
many Americans fear that the government could eventually make the technology mandatory, chipping away at their access to guns or tracking gun users. There is no such thing as a smart gun. We cannot put a device or anything on a firearm that would allow it to become smarter. I met Michael Timlin in Mount Vernon, New York. He owns and operates a gun store and a firing range. When I visited him, Michael walked me through some of his inventory. Racks and display cases filled with hundreds of guns of all sizes, from handguns to rifles to shotguns. We want the gun to be about as easy as possible, so then when the gun is used, we don't have any issues with it. What's wrong with hundreds of years of gun ownership? It's not the epidemic that people like to believe. We're living in a perception. We, we are bombarded constantly with the negatives. We tune into the news every night, and what do we watch? Shoot, shot, kill, shoot, shoot, shoot. We don't see the good sides. Anybody that's anti-gun, they should feel very grateful that there are people who have guns out there. Because if you're standing in the mall, and a guy comes out and he starts to hurt people, and a civilian with a firearm shows up, then there's somebody there that will help you defend your life. Talking to Michael left me wondering, what would it take for smart guns to make it into a shop like his? A couple of years ago, Kai and Jonathan Mossberg came to Mount Vernon. Jonathan is the scion of O.F. Mossberg & Sons, a legendary American gun manufacturing family in North Haven, Connecticut. Jonathan has patented a smart shotgun called the iGun, and he and Kai happen to be in town for a closed-door smart gun symposium. I wanted to try Jonathan's iGun, so I asked him to meet me at Michael's gun range. All of these guys like guns, but all of them have very different views on how they should be used, which was obvious when they got to talking. Michael, this is Jonathan. Michael, Jonathan, Jonathan good to meet you. Hi, Kai. Kai. Yeah, nice to meet you. Do you think both of your respective technologies could someday uh, be brought to market and appear in shops like Michael's here? Definitely. You know, there are people who want to have a firearm in their house, but are afraid to, you know, rightfully, because of the possibility of their children getting hold of it, even when it's properly secured and, you know, it's that one time they forget. If there's people willing to buy it, that means there's people who are willing to sell it. I'm just waiting for the consumers to start demanding it. And when they're comfortable with it, when they know about it, uh, when they test it, when they know it's reliable, uh, distributors will be carrying it, manufacturers will be making it, and it'll be an option, only an option. And uh, if they want to buy it, great. If they don't, that's fine too. I do believe that you guys are onto something, but we start with good intentions and we wind up walking into gun bans. And new technology always leads into gun bans. You take a technology and the government gets their hands on it or somebody gets their hands on it and say, hey, listen, we're using it for good. And then it becomes a mandatory type situation. I am dead set against uh, mandates. Um, I want government Kaido's too, to keep government, to keep their paws out of this stuff. If New York makes this mandated, I will stamp on the side of my box, not for sale in the socialist state of New York. If it didn't work, who's got the liability? With this technology, I could sit here right now and give you a thousand what ifs. Your, your fingerprint technology, well, it doesn't work without a finger, and that happens. Yep. And your ring technology doesn't work without that ring. I look at your, at your, your shotgun without that ring, for me, it's a, it's a stick. The technology needs for me to be more foolproof. That's really the direction I'm going. But you will sell them a, a 1940s vintage Arasaka, literally 30% failure rate when I pull the trigger on some of those things. So we can't say that we're only gonna sell them 100% reliable stuff, yet I want my technology to be a thousand times better than that. And I think Kai does too, and that's what we're achieving. We're trying to achieve that. Maybe one day, hopefully in the future, there will be 
a perfect world for all of this. <laughs> Nothing could really convince Michael that smart guns would be better for our society. If you take poison and you leave it on the table, your toddler's gonna eat it. Should we ban everything on Earth because a parent is too dumb to protect themselves from giving a child a gun? So here comes the smart gun people trying to fix that problem. Fix what? Fix stupidity? We can't fix stupid. I say this all the time to a lot of people who listen to me. Stupid is something that we cannot fix. Smart gun or not, educate people. You wanna do something? You want to, you wanna do some sort of eye gun type thing? Make, make an app where it educates people. Press a button, this is what happens with guns. This is what happens with this. This is how it works. Educate yourself. A smart gun technology is nowhere near the answer for this. What's been wrong with the way it's been? But those arguments are harder to have when you're faced with the victims of gun accidents. This was his last school picture. Right before he was killed, this is September of 2010. Last year, I went to Saratoga Springs in New York to meet Oksana Namkin, whose 12-year-old son, Nicholas, was accidentally shot and killed while playing with a friend in 2010. This is the last picture we have of him. I always want to remember him this way. Happy child. Good friend. It was the last day of school, December 22nd. He was called by a friend of his and uh, was invited over for a play date. Around, I guess, 6, he called me, and he says, Mom, can I stay over? So I said, all right. He just started taking antibiotics. He had, like, a slight ear infection going. So my husband said, why don't I drive it over to him? So when my husband got there, there was a bunch of police around the house, and they told him that Nicholas was shot. And... um. So he called me at home and he said, um, I don't know how to tell you this, honey, but he was shot. I said, shot? How, when, where, you know? Later we found out that they were left alone in the house at some point. And uh, his friend went and took his uh, father's gun and um, he shot him. And then um, when we got to the Albany Medical Center, a neurologist came out and pretty much told us that there's no hope for him, that he has no brain activity. And um, they told us whenever we're ready, we could go in. <laughs> So we went in about 2 o'clock in the morning and they disconnected him. And then his heart was beating for another 29 minutes. I had my head on his chest and it was like a torture. Knowing that every single time this could be the last heartbeat I have here. And then finally it stopped. And my sunshine was gone. After talking to Oksana, it was hard to justify anything other than finding a solution to our gun problem as quickly as possible.
That was a really powerful moment. I remember in the dock watching you stand there with Oksana. It's like really something to watch. It's hard to keep your composure. I would imagine for you, it was hard to keep my composure just watching it and listening to it. Yeah, it was the hardest interview I've ever done in my life. Wow. Yeah. Thank you, everyone, for listening. We'll be back next week with an episode from Ankita in India, right? Yep. And you can find the full Smart Gun documentary on Motherboard. It's called A Smarter Gun. Yeah, it's on YouTube, Vice Videos, which is videos.vice.com, and obviously motherboard.tv. Shout out to Chris O'Coin, the editor of A Smarter Gun, for all of the footage that you heard today. And Lara Heinz, who is the producer with Brian Anderson, as well as Eric Franco. This is Plus Plus Podcast. Please tell your friends about us. I am Jason Kebler. I'm here with Ankita Rao. Brian, our editor, is Tim Barnes. We have music by Paul Chin and artwork by Chase Saita. That's the whole squad. That's the whole squad. Yeah, wow. All right, well, we'll be back with an episode next week. In the meantime, you can check us out on iTunes. We are Plus Plus Podcast. Please tell your friends about us. Give us a rating. And if you can't get enough Motherboard, we also have a podcast called Radio Motherboard, so check that out too, please. If you can't get enough Jason. Yeah, right. I'm on that too. (laughs) We'll be back with an episode next week. And thanks, as always, for listening. Bye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.